Mysterious Circumstances is an American Crimecast production. Remember, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Hey everybody, this is Justin. Welcome to Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. We are back for another uh, fact-filled episode here. Should be a pretty good one today. It'll definitely be a head-scratcher and we got a lot of conflicting stories, a lot of later eyewitness accounts that never came forward at the beginning of this investigation. Uh, Today we'll be talking about the 2003 death of British student Jeremiah Duggan. Uh, He died in uh, Wiesbaden, Germany on March 27, 2003 under very, very mysterious circumstances. You know, things happen to you suddenly. Life goes on smoothly and then suddenly, without you knowing it, your whole world is turned upside down. That's what happened that night. I received a phone call about 35 minutes before his body was found. I could hear immediately by his voice that he was terribly frightened, in fear for his life. And I, could, I saw that immediately, like a mother always knows. I knew he was in danger. The first thing that he said to me was, Mum, I'm in big, big trouble. And then I just said, what, 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 tell me. And then the phone was cut. A few minutes, he rang back again. And the first thing that he said after that was, Mum, I'm frightened. His voice was sort of quite quiet, and I had remembered hearing him arguing with somebody. Now, just let me finish. Then he said in a very sort of strong voice, I want to see you now. And I said, well, where are you? And then the phone was cut. All right, what you guys just heard there was the accounts of the last phone call that Jeremiah Duggan made to his mother roughly about 45 minutes to an hour before he got hit by three different cars on a uh, Westbaden, Germany freeway. It's kind of like an autobahn. Cars are usually going about 100 kilometers an hour, you know, about 65 miles an hour if you're in English. But before we get to all the details, which there are a lot of details, uh, and I racked my brain on this shit for like two weeks. Uh, Jeremiah Duggan was born on November 10th, 1980. He was a Scorpio, as am I. Uh, he was born in Golders Green, so the section of North London. Uh, for all accounts, he had a very, very happy childhood. He had two older sisters, I believe. Uh, he was a very, very good student. He was a very, he was, they, from all accounts, he was a very gifted student, very smart kid, very outspoken, happy, just loved life in general. I mean, you know, that that literally his friends, his family all said the same thing in every interview that I uh, listened to and everything that I read. Uh, after high school, he ended up winning a scholarship to Christ Hospital School in Sussex. Now, the only real 
significant thing that happened in his childhood is when he was about eight years old, his parents divorced, at which time he did receive some counseling from a place called Travistock Institute. Uh, we're going to get to, there's a little bit in the theory section about the Travistock Institute that he actually got counseling from. And I know it's a small factor, but just remember that place. It's going to play a factor later. So after studying abroad a little bit, spent a little bit of time in India and here and there and stuff, he ends up finding his way in 2001 to Paris, and he goes to Paris to uh, study French at the British Institute and also study English at Sorbonne. Uh, around this time, I think it's 2001, 2002, he meets, from what I understand, the love of this young guy's life, a uh, French girl named Maya. She was a music student, I believe. A uh, very nice girl. I saw a lot of interviews with her, and you can tell they were they were definitely uh, a couple that was in love, and he absolutely adored her. Where our story starts taking off is probably right about 9-11. Uh, for those of you not familiar with 9-11, get under the rock you've been living in. Uh, I know some of you listeners might be younger. Uh, I'm 35, and I recall 9-11. I watched live as the second plane hit the tower, and, you know, that was a day in American history that that was very, very bad. Um, very, A lot of mixed emotions on that day, a lot of anger, a lot of sadness. Very bad day. Now, Jeremiah, at this point when 9-11 happens, starts getting very political. He is very opposed... It, not I can't really say opposed yet, but it he starts getting very, very into politics on what's going to happen next, why did this happen, uh, just facts and little facts and details like that. So in about January of 2003, Jeremiah is walking about, I can't remember where he was walking out of like a store or something, and he comes up to a book stand, and they're handing out literature. And this is a few weeks before the initial invasion of Iraq, when America was just getting ready to invade Iraq. He didn't agree with us invading Iraq because it didn't make sense to him. I'll be perfectly honest with you, it didn't make much sense to me either, but this is not a political podcast and we're not even going to go that route. So, these pamphlets are getting handed out by an organizer of what is called the LaRouche Movement. For those of you who do not know who Lyndon LaRouche is, I'm going to tell you right now, this old man is batshit fucking crazy, alright? There is no other way to put it besides batshit fucking crazy. This guy is a conspiracy theory nut, and it should be noted, because this will also play a fact later, that this guy hates Jews, and he hates Brits. He hates everybody that's British. And he is very anti-Semitic. This will play a factor because uh, our young, young deceased man here is British and he is also Jewish. So he starts getting involved in this movement. Now at the time, it is suspected by various countries that the movement puts on a political front and then pretty much brainwashes you to believe have carry the same beliefs that they have this is 
kind of a lot of speculation, but some of it is actually fact. And I will read to you some of the things that Lyndon LaRouche has said about British people and has said about Jewish people. We'll get to that a little bit later. So he starts reading this literature that he gets and he's really like, he's really getting into it. He's agreeing with all this, all this political talk. Hey, you know, at this point in time, he's not agreeing with us invading Iraq totally understandable and this is pretty much all the literature that Lyndon the LaRouche movement's putting out it's just anti-war anti-war so he starts emailing back and forth with you know a couple people from from the LaRouche movement and he decides in uh I think it's about early March that he's going to go to a anti-war conference that is going to be held in Germany, and he's going to go with some of these people from the LaRouche movement. And what they actually call it is the LaRouche Youth Movement, because they, I'm not even going to lie, it's from everything I've read, they're, pr they're pretty much trying to indoctrinate young people, which is, this is about the impressionable age when you, you know, if you're the leader of a cult, you know, you want to try to recruit some folks. And it should be noted that the LaRouche movement is actually considered a political cult because of what's happened with some of the people who have left. People have spoken out. There's some people who still, when they spoke out or speak out, they remain anonymous because they are in fear for their lives if they speak out against this organization. So let's get to... Uh, early March, he decides to go, and he tells his girlfriend about it. He really doesn't tell her too many details. Uh, you know, he's he is, you know, very open with his girlfriend, but she also knows that ever since 9-11, he's become very passionate about politics. And he, since, you know, it was stated that we were getting ready to invade Iraq, he became just that much more passionate about this which is totally understandable so he's telling his girlfriend about these people that he met and they're holding a anti-war conference in uh, Westbaden, Westbaden, Germany so he decides to go he agrees to go even though he literally is not going to know anybody there nobody's going with him so the girlfriend reluctantly is like okay you know if it means that much to you you know, go ahead and do your thing. So a few days before he goes to leave, he calls up his mother, Erica. Um, I actually had the opportunity, I actually emailed Erica Duggan a little bit. She only sent me back one email response. I didn't really want to pressure her to talk too much more about it. Because this woman has literally been fighting since 2003 to get answers about her son's death. And the German police are just stonewalling her like crazy. We'll get into the details of that a little bit later on as we're strolling down the timeline. So, he talks to his mom and, you know, she she really is kind of sketchy about it. But at the same time, she's like, you know what? He's 22 years old. He is passionate about, about this. He wants to make a difference. So she's like, you know what, if if this is something you want to do, then go do it. Uh, she actually later said, you know, she regretted that. If she would have known more about this organization, she definitely would have told him not to go. So his girlfriend, 
shows him off, or not shows him off, but she's there when he leaves to go to Germany, and she specifically even says, she's like, yeah, she's like, it's two cars, there's about ten guys, she says, they, she's like, I, I just had the worst feeling ever when I actually saw these guys, because they did not look like very nice people. Now, granted, that's, you know, an intuition thing, but you can, you know, you can tell the vibes, man. You know what I mean? You know, you know a crowd of people you don't want to mess with when you walk by them because it's like, hey, I don't get a good feeling about these, and that's what she had. But he was dead set on going. He wanted to make a difference. He was very, very outspoken and very passionate about this cause. So she reluctantly says, okay, you know, I'll meet you in Paris so on March 24th, he arrives in Wiesbaden, Germany, at a place called the Schiller Institute. Now, the Schiller Institute is basically one of the sister organiz little sister institutes, like an organization or whatever, for uh, the LaRouche movement. And it is ran by Lyndon LaRouche's wife, uh, Hilga Zepp LaRouche. That is her name. She and you look at pictures of this woman, man, she's a battle axe. I ain't even gonna lie. She looks really mean. But anyway, she runs the Schiller Institute. And he gets there and basically what it is is it's not really an anti war conference that he finds himself at. He finds himself in a dorm, in a little apartment dorm room with three other people. And basically they're going to seminars and like little mini conferences almost all hours of the day. You know, they're required to take notes. That was pretty much proven fact. He actually had left behind uh, when he died a couple of notepads that he had been taking notes in. Well, while he's there during one of the seminars that he's sitting in, he starts noticing that these people are starting to talk really, really bad about Jewish people. And they're also starting to talk very, very bad about the English. Some of the things they are saying is that the English are basically at fault. Uh, just saying, Tony Blair and Dick Cheney, who was Vice President of the United States uh, under George Bush, are the two that cohorts that are pretty much saying this Iraq war needs to happen. They are blaming the Brits for the war and what would eventually be World War III. As for the Jewish people, here is one of the things that Lyndon LaRouche says about the, about the Jewish people. And I quote, Judaism is not a true religion but only a half-religion, a curious appendage and subspecies of Christianity. It evolved as an ideological abstraction of the Roman merchant user who had not evolved to the state of palpable enlightenment, a half-Christian who had not developed a Christian conscience, a self-subsisting Judaism never existed and never could exist. That is a direct quote from Lyndon LaRouche on what, you know, one of the various things that he thinks about the the Jewish religion. He is not a fan of them. Uh, it's, there's a lot of interviews and a lot of 
certain things out there that if you have a chance, if you're actually interested in it, it would really be who of you to look up because this dude is a total asshole. So saying that, he starts noticing that. So in one of the conferences, he also they also state that this Travistock Institute that Jeremiah had actually attended when he was about eight years old for some counseling, they literally call this place, they refer to it as a brainwashing center for the Zionist British. Basically saying that this Travistock Institute is a front for MI6 or the CIA and they use it to brainwash kids to, you know, basically be Zionists and, you know, say Britain is, you know, so much greater and we're going to we're gonna control the world and all this other just total bullshit. I mean, this guy, like I told you, is batshit crazy, alright? This is what he honestly believes and he still believes this to this day. This guy is still alive. He's actually 94 years old, I believe, this year. And that right there is just amazing that somebody has not killed this man yet. So we start getting in to right around, I believe, March 25th. And he tells his girlfriend, he's not really, he says something's wrong. He said something's not right here. And he tells her about the incident where he was starting to question some of the things that they were teaching him. He said they really did not like that. And he stood up during one of the seminars and said, I'm British and I'm Jewish. And I actually went to the Travistock Institute. So he tells his girlfriend, and he actually writes it down in his notes, that he almost felt targeted after that had occurred. Whether or not, you know, that's really the way it went down, I'm not sure. You know, that will play a factor a little bit and when we get to the theory section. And I'm sorry, I'm a little bit scatterbrained right now. This is... A very, very wild case. So, by the 25th, he starts getting a little bit of a bad vibe from this place. He actually calls his, calls his girlfriend and he wants to meet in Paris. It did not take very long for this, for this young man to realize that something probably isn't right here. He's not really agreeing with some of the stuff that the, this uh, Schiller Institute is trying to instill in him. So, he tells his girlfriend, his girlfriend's like, get on a train, just come to Paris now. And when we start getting into our case here, it'll be the evening of the 26th. Now, on the day of the 26th, a bunch of members from the, from the movement, or from this organization, whatever you want to call it, and Jeremiah go to Frankfurt, Germany. Basically, they're there just to hand out flyers and just get the word out about the whole Iraq war that's getting ready to start and just basically trying to spread the word on the LaRouche movement. Now, at this point in time, it's said that, and this is from a witness who is actually there with him, so he's hanging out in Frankfurt on the 26th with some people from the Schiller Institute, and he's sitting on the steps of this uh, museum which had a Rembrandt exhibit, at about 8.30 p.m. Now, a girl that was with him at the time said at this point in time, he actually started crying, and he said he doesn't know if he can handle this or not. She said that 
he broke down in tears because he didn't really fully agree with everything that this organization was trying to teach him and he thinks he made a huge mistake by coming here so later that night I guess they arrive back at uh, back at the apartments or the dorm rooms, whatever you want to call them, in uh, Westbaden, at about right around midnight. Now, apparently, around this time, it's stated by his roommates and other witnesses that Jeremiah starts acting really, really fidgety. He's just pacing back and forth, and at around he just. He feels traps. He said he couldn't sleep. He kept switching the lights on and off. And he said he was unable to trust LaRouche and he felt trapped. So at around 4.20 a.m., which is now Thursday, uh, March 27th, Jeremiah called his girlfriend on his roommate's cell phone. And this was a verified call. They do know that this call happened. She says that he was speaking very quietly and sounded agitated and confused. She also said that he was uh, said he no longer knew what was true and real and that someone was conducting experiments with computers and magnetic waves and perhaps on him. So she asked him to take a train to Paris in the morning. Now, according to the roommate, roommate Jeremiah then telephoned his mother, after which he ran out of the house. Miss uh, Mrs. Duggan said the first call came in at 5.24 a.m. German time, which does totally coincide with, you know, what with the timeline that we're looking at. Now, you heard the contents of the call. I played that for you at the very beginning here. And there's a few things that strike me as odd. The fact that he is talking to somebody else there and what that other person is saying is very, very curious. Now, given that that was the last contact that anybody had with Jeremiah Duggan, is very weird because at about five, at about 5:15 a.m. before he made the call to his uh, to his mom, from all wit from the witness accounts at this little dorm slash apartment complex that they were staying at the roommates are saying like I told you earlier you know he's pacing around he can't sleep flipping lights on and off so he decides to go out and have a cigarette now as they're walking down the apartment or down to the dorm down on the first floor somebody goes to switch on a light and accidentally rings a doorbell now according to their testimony when the doorbell went off, it freaked Jeremiah out, and he took off running. Now, this supposedly happened at 5.15 a.m. The call to his mother did not come in until 5.24 a.m. So there's a little bit of, uh, you know, discrepancy right there. So it's hard telling. You know, we do know what time the call was made, but we do not know where the call actually came from. We will get to that in a little bit when we talk about this astounding German police investigation here. And why they will not track where the phone call actually came from. So Jeremiah takes off running. Alright, like we got a little, I had to pull up a little bitty map here. And it's pretty, it's pretty interesting to see. 
on the map, okay, we have this little apartment complex and there's this big long highway. Now when Jeremiah called his mom, she said that he was absolutely terrified. And his grandmother, who also was on the call too because she had picked up the line, also said the same thing. So basically this guy is extremely terrified and at that's, this point we can assume that he's running, you know, for, li for his life. I mean, that's about the only way to really put it. He wants to get the hell out of there as quickly as possible. So he takes off running. What he does is he takes off running towards the southeast. And he follows this highway. Jeremiah Duggan, all in all, runs about 5 kilometers in roughly 45 minutes. The first incident of a car actually hitting him was about 6 a.m. So he takes off running at about 5.20, 5.24, somewhere right around in there. Takes off running to the southeast. He is extremely agitated. He, From all accounts, his girlfriend and his mom both... Or his girlfriend actually said specifically that he was a little bit... It was hard to understand what he was saying because he was talking so softly. As if he didn't want somebody to overhear him. Uh, she also said that he was pretty incoherent. Like he was, you know, talking really fast, just really out of it so he starts running towards the southeast he runs right past the main train station and this is what bothers me about this if this guy and I mean the main train station is maybe be maybe seven or eight city blocks away from where he took off running so if he's wanting to get out of there He's actually running right past the one place that he would have to go to get the hell out of here. So he's still running down this hall or this highway, okay? Now these cars are going 100 kilometers an hour, roughly 65 miles an hour. And this is a four-lane highway, and there's really not much of it. There's no, like, real jogger's path. So he's literally, like, on the shoulder of this road just hauling ass. It starts getting odd because about three-quarter of the way through this five kilometer run he actually it's actually reported that he gets clipped by a car now the witness in the car says that Jeremiah ran out in front of him with arms open and said that he clipped the uh, the side mirror but he swerved out of the way and missed him and well he didn't really miss him if he clipped off the side of the mirror you know what I'm saying so apparently, Jeremiah Duggan gets up and keeps running. Keeps running to the southeast. Now the first collision was reported at about 6 a.m. He runs about another third of the way, and at 6.14 a.m., another car reports that Jeremiah runs out in front of their car and actually hits him pretty well now basically he sideswipes jeremiah and it breaks off the side passenger mirror of that car and shatters the passenger side window and there is also a report of a big size dent in the passenger side door now after that car hits him he supposedly rolls into the road and is literally ran over by another car now there's a couple little interesting facts about the car that supposedly ran him over the second time. Or the, I guess it'd technically be the third hit. 
Okay, German police show up after the second or after the third car hit him, rolled him over. Obviously, they tried to slam on the brakes. There were there were uh, tire marks where this car slammed on the brakes because they had obviously just r- literally ran over a human being. It should be noted that these cars, none of them, had any blood, any tissue, any kind of fiber from anything that Jeremiah Duggan was wearing that day. No blood, no nothing. What the cops conclude at this point in time, that's, like I said, that's just a little fact. Just hold that in the memory banks for when we get to the theories. Cops show up. And within three hours of investigating this incident, have ruled it a suicide by motor accident. Basically, they are saying that he wanted to kill himself so bad that he threw himself in front of three different cars trying to kill himself on this four-lane highway. Now, like I just told you, the problem with that is none of the cars had any fibers, blood, anything from Jeremiah Duggan on them. So after they rule it a suicide, apparently the German police take his shoes, his clothes, and whatever else was on him, and they burn it. Because in Germany, under German law, suicides are not investigated whatsoever. Once it is ruled a suicide, the case is closed. So after about three hours, they say this kid killed himself. Now there's a... there's actually an interview with uh, a German prosecutor. I would have played it for you guys, but it's uh, it's in German. You know what I mean? I had to read subtitles, so I had to kind of write it down a little bit. Now, the German prosecutor, when asked about Jeremiah's death, this is what he had to say about the investigation. And I quote, whether it was suicide or uh, this accident came about for some other reason is irrelevant. We only have, we only had to investigate it if it was someone else's fault. Why it's suicide is in, is irrelevant. We won't investigate because it's about whether someone else uh, was involved with the accident. If they're not directly involved, it's irrelevant. Suicide is not a crime, so participating in a suicide is not a crime. It is not the business of this office to restore any kind of peace of mind to Jeremiah's mother. Now, this interview was conducted, I believe, in like 2009. Jeremiah Duggan's mother is like literally the most badass woman on the planet. If you want a mom, this woman would be it. Since the day Jeremiah died, all she wanted was answers. She was actually in Britain at the time... And you can tell by the phone call. She, when she got that phone call, she was literally on the phone with British police like five minutes later. She wanted to get whatever was solved. And they they will not investigate. She has literally investigated this pretty much herself. She has spent the money and the time and effort to hire other coroners and other forensic uh, what are they, scientists, forensic scientists, or whatever, to investigate this. And the reason she did this is because, one, all of his clothes and shoes were burned within 
a few hours of him of them ruling it a suicide another reason is because of the lack of evidence on these cars supposedly the no blood the no fibers no anything like that it should also be noted that the police officer was the one who initially investigated the accident and played his coroner role was a random police officer with absolutely no medical training whatsoever now the coroner at the time actually did state that the body did from witness accounts the body did did show signs of an accident in the way that the witnesses uh, told their story you know they say hey he ran out it's just it showed signs of an accident that happened happened according to witnesses so he obviously ruled it a suicide the one question I have about this if this guy's gonna throw himself into fucking traffic why is he gonna run five kilometers to do it this guy could have literally ran one block and hit a highway and done it right there he didn't have to run five kilometers now that including the phone call that he made to his mother is extremely sketchy people who want to commit suicide are not gonna be frightened and not gonna ask for help they're not gonna do anything like that they're probably just gonna go out and do it you know what I'm saying it doesn't make much sense to me there's a lot of holes in this police investigation if you even want to call it an investigation now the reason I brought up the phone call before Jeremiah's mom wants to know when he actually called her the very last phone call that got cut off she wants to know where he was when that phone call was made now they have the ability to do that they said they will not do that because the case is closed and until there is any evidence that the LaRouche movement was actually physically involved you know they need physical evidence they will not reopen this investigation so at roughly about 6:35 a.m. that morning Jeremiah is is pronounced dead it is officially ruled a suicide saying that he ran out in front of traffic to get hit by these cars now another little interesting thing is is at 7:40 a.m. Jeremiah's roommate who was staying with him at the Schiller Institute or the apartment slash dorm where he was staying called uh, Duggan's girlfriend Maya in Paris to ask if she had heard from him he said Duggan had left the apartment and had not returned around 11 a.m. and she obviously said that you know she hadn't and of course she is like freaking out fucking worried right now so Jeremiah's mom Erica calls the roommate's cell phone at about 11 a.m. and it was answered and then passed to a Schiller Institute manager now what the Schiller Institute did next was pretty shitty within three hours of Jeremiah's alleged suicide officials from the LaRouche movement were said to have told the police they actually went to the police station gave them everything that belonged to Jeremiah and specifically told the German police that Duggan had been a patient at the Travistock uh, Center 
and had suffered from suicidal impulses. Uh, that view of him pretty much shaped the rest of the uh, investigation, unfortunately. Why would they just go into the police office, give them, give them all of Jeremiah's belongings, and then just throw that bit of knowledge out there? First of all, they do not think highly of the Travistock uh, Center, or whatever it is, in, in England. And the fact that they embed that little thought in their heads just raises questions for me personally. So the Germans did not conduct any kind of autopsy. The coroner actually stated, or actually it wasn't the coroner, that it was the uh, accident investigator, actually noted marks on Duggan's clothes consistent with having been in contact with the other side of the uh, underside of a vehicle. Then they consider the fact that when the cars braked, it had left uh, marks on the road, and supposedly. Duggan's body was lying roughly about 23 meters beyond the point of impact. Now, when you're going 65 miles an hour, I don't know if 23 meters is going to be enough. That's just, that seems a little bit unbelievable to me. So from this point on, Erica Duggan is starts justice for Jeremiah, which is, there's a lot of info on this website. Um, I, I, you know, if you actually feel like looking into this case a little bit further, definitely check that website out. There's a lot of good info on there. But she basically dedicates the rest of her life to finding out what happened to to her son because literally every time she she actually goes to Germany like every few years to try to get answers and these people literally will close the blinds lock the doors and not even talk to this woman because it was initially ruled a suicide so they have no no bearing on any kind of investigation they're not going to reopen it well in about 2006 a couple witnesses come forward and these witnesses are people from the Schiller Institute, or not the Schiller Institute, but the LaRouche movement, who had actually left. They come forward and tell her that he was targeted because of the fact that he was British and he was Jewish, and that he actually went to Travistock. Now, whether or not this is true, I'm not sure. This is her words, and that is totally unconfirmed. There is a lot of lot of weird little goings on, like after the fact. Actually, in 2006 as well, a uh, somebody comes forward who was a part of this movement as well, who happened to be a pedestrian that witnessed his death. Now, the the thing that they actually state is that he wasn't running on the road; that he was thrown out of a car at the scene of the accident. Now why they say this is because after he had admitted that he was British and he was Jewish they specifically targeted him and they took him to an actual uh, different building I believe it was called the press building and the funny thing about this is and I shouldn't say funny but the most ironic thing about this is is that this press building is less than one kilometer away from where his body was hit by these cars or 
where his body was found, depending on how you want to look at it. Now, let's say Jeremiah was running towards the southeast, like I was saying, if he would have ran probably about another half kilometer, right there on that side of that road is this press building. I find that a little bit weird, okay? All right, now you have all the facts of this case. You know everything that I know, and I know, like I said, I'm sorry I'm a little scatterbrained right now. It's like 3 a.m., I'm actually getting ready to pack my bags and leave for Las Vegas here in like four hours. So let's go ahead and let's go ahead and get to the theories. Like I said, you guys know all the facts. You're right there with me. The most popular theory, and this is what the LaRouche organization has basically put all this on, and what a lot of people other belie also believe, is that Jeremiah Duggan was. Uh, paranoid schizophrenic and it is a pretty good theory okay because he's at the right age uh, paranoid schizophrenia can be uh, you know it could be triggered by high pressure situations which is what he was in and it would cause the you know say the auditory hallucinations uh, you know he would he was showing some of the the signs not really not really so much symptoms there's a difference between symptoms and signs he really wasn't showing too many symptoms um but the thing about this is is a little fact about paranoid schizophrenia is that it can be passed down genetically uh directly from your mother or your father and that gives you a 10 percent chance of being a paranoid schizophrenic now if neither of your parents or it's not traceable back on either side just a random person being paranoid schizophrenic you have less than a one percent chance of becoming such now knowing that that's not very good percentages now i have the i actually had uh i got pretty lucky my sister actually has a degree in psychology so i talked to her about this today i will say this paranoid schizophrenia can really go f I mean there's no progression to it there can be but not necessarily the I mean it can it can be full bore within days weeks months there it doesn't have to be a gradual procession now it is very plausible that this high pressure pressure situation that he was in uh, the type of person that he was that this could have literally you know what he was experiencing at this quote-unquote conference could have triggered his uh, paranoid schizophrenia but then again he did not really have any symptoms this kid was the happiest kid on the planet before he went to this place he was in love with a woman he was making plans and when he left I mean when he called his girlfriend when he called his mom he wanted out of there bad and judging by the notes that he left behind about these little seminars that he was doing he was definitely in the wrong place at the wrong time he should not have been anywhere around there so that kind of offsets the uh paranoid schizophrenic theory now i will be honest he there were you know a few things they say they were reporting that he was ocd now ocd can be a sign of paranoid schizophrenia but it's not a required sign of it i hate saying required but you don't have to be OCD. It's not one of the 
telltale warning signs, you know what I'm saying? So, I really don't like the paranoid schizophrenic thing in that he went out and ran out to kill himself because he was having all these hallucinations. He thought everybody was out to get him. There's a couple other theories. Personally, I just... The the main theory here is, honestly, from everything I've known and from what I've told you is everything that I know, I, I honestly think that he realized what the LaRouche youth movement was all about and he knew that he had to get the hell out of there. I think that he was actually targeted. I think they were really out to get him. I think they considered him a a spy, basically. He was a British Jewish young man who had been to the Travistock Center for quote unquote counseling. They believe the Travistock Center is a place where the CIA and MI6 are uh, training young kids to, you know, be spies and shit. I think they believe, I think, I honestly believe that the LaRouche organization, when they found out these details about him that they did not know, I think they realized that, hey, you know, this guy's a spy. These people are if you look at a couple interviews about some of the people that have walked away from this, they will straight up tell you this is the definition of a cult. All right. So with that being said, like I said, I I wish I could give you more information. There's not really that many theories on what happened. So either he committed suicide or he was trying to get out of there and he was murdered, seen as, as an enemy, whatever else have you. Personally, I don't think he committed suicide. I just It just does not make sense. The phone calls at the beginning, and then him actually running five kilometers before deciding to get hit by three different cars in the middle of a four-lane highway. I don't even think that he actually ran down the highway, because if he was wanting to get out of there, he ran literally right past the damn train station. I think this witness that came forward later, who uh, actually stood up, for uh, for Erica, his mother, and actually said that he was not at the dorm. He was actually at the uh, Schiller Press Building, and then his body was moved there. I, I honestly believe that, personally. Now, I know there's a lot of tidbits. There's, there's a few smaller details that are in, in with this. I mean, in 2015, uh, just last year, actually, a... British coroner overlooked the case and said that there were signs of foul play. Now, it's I hate saying it, but it's it's hard to put a lot of stock into that because this guy was hired by Erica and that is totally fine, but he also said in a court of law that there was no reason to say that he did not kill himself, but just that his body showed signs of an altercation before he was quote-unquote hit by the cars. He also said that the cars, uh, the dent in the side of the one car that Jeremiah had supposedly made was not done by a human being. He said there's no possible way that was done by a human being. He said the dent was consistent with something get, getting hit by a piece of metal. So the overall you know, outcome or quote-unquote theory of these of the coroner and uh, Erica is that he was actually taken after he had admitted that he was a, a British Jew that he was actually taken from this dormer apartment to this press building and you know possibly beaten up 
you know, possibly murdered, and then his body thrown out into the street, and then there being somewhat of a, you know, it was a setup scene. A lot of this case cannot be investigated or researched very well because of the German police department. They are closed-lipped. They will not reopen this investigation. Supposedly, it was reopened and they are supposed to be investigating right now, but obviously they are not. There has been no real news from Germany about this case in the last few years. With that being said, go ahead and form your own conclusion. I honestly have no idea. This case was probably the most confusing thing I've ever looked into so far because you got two groups of people, meaning the family and then the uh, the organization, saying two totally different things. Personally, the evidence and the common sense factor that we're talking about right now, I really do not see suicide as the cause of this young man's death. I could be wrong. You know, maybe one of these days we'll find out. So I'll probably wrap up this episode by saying, uh, usually I talk about, uh, you know, going to patreon.com slash mysterious circumstances if you want to donate money or getting a hold of me directly if you want to donate money to the show to cover some of my expenses. I'm not going to do that today. What I'm going to say is that any money that you would want to donate to me Go to www.justiceforjeremiah.com and donate this money to Jeremiah's mother. Because at this point in time, Jeremiah is buried in an unmarked grave. The reason he is buried in an unmarked grave is because his mother, his parents, are literally flat broke. They spend every single penny they can trying to find answers to their son's death. So, there is a little donation button on there, I do believe. Just any money that you would ever think about donating to the show, donate to her. Help that woman get a tombstone. She is a hell of a trooper. She is a fighter. She will not stop until she finds out what happened to her son, whether good or bad. All she wants is answers and a full, proper investigation. And I couldn't couldn't agree with her more. This investigation is total bullshit. So... I suppose that is the end of this episode, and next episode will be the abduction and murder of a young girl from southern Indiana, a suggestion from Stephen, who is from that town, and then we'll decide on what episode is next after that, but until the next episode, sorry this was a little uh, scatterbrained for you, I'm, you know, on about three cups of coffee and I got a bunch of packing to do and stuff, so... Uh, If you have any questions, comments, concerns, any theories of your own, you can always email me or comment on the show on Facebook. I do have a Facebook page. It gets a lot of traffic nowadays. So, Alright, I suppose on that note, till next time, I will see you on the flip side.